there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pen's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sex, and drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jamika was on edge. Usually, she radiated confidence that lit up the room, but not today. She resisted the temptation to taste the synthetic courage on the table in front of her, an ounce of powdered cocaine. Instead, she gathered up several grams and handed them off to one of her most trusted dealers, David. She wasn't sure if it would sell, but she wanted him to try. Jamika wanted to convince her boyfriend and business partner, Daff, that they should pivot from selling marijuana to coke. Daff wasn't enthused about the switch. They already did well dealing weed. Cocaine was a bigger risk. But Jamika wanted that cocaine money. Showtime. The next few hours went by quickly. Jamika had only reached out to her choicest weed clients, but every single one of them wanted in. Jamika only had a few grams left when David returned. He'd already sold everything Jamika had given him, and he wanted more. Where there once was an ounce of cocaine, now there was a stack of cash. When Dav came home, he was astonished. Jamika had made all this cash off a single ounce in one night? For this kind of money, they would risk it all. Their time, their freedom, even their lives. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Jamika Thompson Hairston, one of the most ambitious and powerful cocaine traffickers of the 1980s and early 90s. This week, we'll explore what happened when a wave of cocaine smashed into Los Angeles and how Jamika rode that white powder wave from a destitute childhood in South Central Los Angeles all the way to a mansion in Encino. Next week, We'll see how Jamika expanded her empire nationwide, only to see her maternal instincts bring it all crashing down. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. 
you allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Now, let's witness the powerful rise of the Queen Pen of Los Angeles, Jamika Thompson Hairston. Jamika had a lot in common with other hustlers. She was ruthless, she was violent, she had an insatiable appetite for money and power. But she had another asset none of the other big players had. She was a woman. As a woman, Jamika was acutely aware that she was expected to do less, to be less cunning and less aggressive than the men around her. At first, Jamika was resentful of this unfair presumption of inferiority. But in the drug-slinging business, or as insiders call it, the game, Jamika learned that men's underestimation of her was an advantage. In fact, Jamika's femininity brought her to the very top of the game and awarded her the prizes she most desired, money and control. In 1981, Jamika and her boyfriend Daff were watching a football game at home. Jamika watched Daff drool over a commercial for an enormous television. Money was gushing in from cocaine sales. Jamika decided her Daff deserved a surprise. The next day, Jamika entered an electronics store in the posh neighborhood of Santa Monica. Jamika proceeded straight to the counter. She knew exactly what she wanted, no browsing necessary. When Jamika heard the price for the model she was looking for, she made a counteroffer. What kind of deal could she get if she paid in cash for two TVs? And of course, she'd need delivery and installation. Jamika was always thinking ahead, considering everything she'd need to complete the deal. No nickel and diming, and no middlemen. Jamika left the store with everything she wanted, and at a great price. But she'd also planted the seeds for something more. Those seeds would bear fruit the very next day. After the TVs were delivered and installed, and Daff was delighted with his surprise, Jamika received a phone call. It was one of the electronics salesmen she had dealt with the day before, checking in to make sure Jamika was satisfied with the product and service. Then, to her complete surprise, he made a proposition. He had some other products she might be interested in. Jamika arranged a meeting to check out this new product. She was pleased to discover the product was cocaine, and the TV salesman was selling it at a better price than her and Daff's original hookup. Jamika was relentless. Everywhere she went, she saw ways to improve and expand her business. And although she could be hard, she also knew how to be approachable. Friendly, even. Jamika's ability to get total strangers to trust her was unique in her business, where many of the men dealing drugs used guns and fear to get what they wanted. Jamika's strategy served her and Daff well. In an episode of The Reel's documentary program, Gangsters, America's Most Evil, Jamika reminisced about the height of their operation. Quote, South Central in the early 80s? It was like selling ice cream. Jamika reports that at the time, quote, 
It was nothing for me to have 50 kilos of cocaine in the garage. We had three dope houses. They ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They never closed down. And money is being picked up every single day. Jamika writes in her memoir, Queen Pin, that she and Daff only put $100 bills into their safety deposit box at a Beverly Hills bank. There simply wasn't space for smaller notes. Jamika and Daff's lifestyle ameliorated in step with their expanding wealth. Daff remodeled his mother's home and transformed her garage into a luxurious man cave for him and his friends to gamble in. When they wanted to gamble in Las Vegas instead, they chartered a private jet. Jamika took her girlfriends on lavish shopping sprees on Rodeo Drive, where Jamika instructed them to buy everything they wanted at designer stores like Fila, Gucci, Chanel, and Armani. Jamika was acquiring a taste for the good life. She never tried the product that was making her rich, but she did have an addiction to something else. Money. That insatiable desire created a cycle. The more she got, the more she wanted. Jamika and Daff weren't the only ones on the come up. All over Los Angeles, but especially in South Central, young people were getting rich practically overnight selling cocaine. Ostentatious cars with insanely expensive sound systems and rims became commonplace in poor neighborhoods like Compton. Jamika and Daff owned more cars than they could find garage space for. But the Los Angeles Police Department was fighting back, and their tactics were the most extreme the city had ever seen. Facing political pressure to clean up the streets before the 1984 Summer Olympics, LAPD Chief Daryl Gates used a four-ton military tank equipped with a 14-foot battering ram to tear open dwellings suspected of concealing cocaine operations. Violence didn't just come from law enforcement. Competing drug dealers often used brutal force to gain territory and access to product. But Jamika didn't let the danger affect her gameplay. She said in an interview, It was a lot of violence around me. But the violence didn't affect me. It didn't even bother me. I felt like I was untouchable. Jamika's unflinching attitude toward bloodshed and mayhem, her obsession with money and power, her fixation on control, it can all be traced back to her childhood. In 1970, when Jamika was in fourth grade, she came home to find her family had been evicted from their rental house on Sycamore Avenue in Los Angeles. The yard was scattered with her family's possessions. Jamika remembers seeing her Easter dress that her mother had constantly fretted over keeping clean thrown in the dirt. Her mother Lonnie was in the Air Force Reserves and a probation officer for the California Youth Authority. Jamika couldn't understand how her mother could work so hard and take on jobs with so much responsibility and still not make enough money to take care of their family. Jamika hated how helpless she felt. Even at eight years old, she knew she never wanted to be vulnerable to this kind of chaos ever again. In an interview for the Netflix documentary series, Drug Lords, Jamika declared, the day that we got evicted, was the day that I knew that I wanted money 
and I wanted to control everything. That's the day Queen Pin came into my heart. That night, Jamika, Lonnie, and her three brothers shared a small room at the West Adams Manor, a rundown motel. Jamika couldn't sleep that night and instead stayed up listening to her mother crying in the bathroom. Jamika vividly remembered the hot shame she felt when a friend from school saw her leaving the shabby motel. That afternoon, she told her mother she wanted to live with her grandmother in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She wrote, It wasn't a request. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a fact. In my mind, I had just told my mother how it was going to be. It was the first spark of the decisive leader that Jamika would become. Hattiesburg was a big change for Jamika. She was used to the traffic and crowds of Los Angeles. In Hattiesburg, neighbors lived miles apart. But it was here in the country, not in the urban jungle, where Jamika would get familiar with violence and accept it as a way to solve problems. After Jamika got off the plane, she found her grandmother in the airport terminal. As soon as Jamika got close, she was immediately pulled into a crushing hug. <gasps> then her grandmother, who everyone called Madir, asked whether Jamika had eaten. Jamika neglected to address her grandmother as ma'am in her response. Not two minutes after meeting her Madir, <gasps> Jamika received her first slap. But the pain served its purpose. Jamika might have resented her grandmother, but she respected her. Jamika's aunts and cousins also lived under Madir's roof, and Madir handled her large family with a mix of military precision and southern manners. During Jamika's time there, beatings were commonplace, and Jamika learned fast. When one of Jamika's cousins tested her by stealing food off her plate, Jamika stabbed his hand with a fork. Madir sent them both out back and laid down the ground rules. No biting, no scratching, now work it out. Jamika's cousin was 10, and much bigger than the eight-year-old Jamika. But Jamika wasted no time in making first contact right on her cousin's jaw. It was like something within Jamika had been unleashed. Her cousin went down after that first punch, and then Jamika was on top of him, throwing punch after punch. Madir separated them and beat them both, but Jamika was proud. Now she had a reputation among her cousins. Don't try that girl from California. Jamika lived in Hattiesburg with her Madir through 1977. Her relationship with Madir was always rocky, and it came to a head during her freshman year of high school. Jamika had secretly lost her virginity to a man almost 10 years her senior. She thought she'd done a good job keeping the relationship on the down low until Jamika came home one day to find Madir at the door with a shotgun. Jamika was no longer welcome in Hattiesburg. Jamika finished out the school year, but as soon as summer hit, she was on a plane back to Los Angeles. Jamika had left L.A. as a homeless little girl. She returned a confident, forceful, strong-minded 15-year-old. Jamika had only been back in Los Angeles a few weeks 
when she noticed a particular man in her neighborhood. Whenever he joined the craps games Jamika's brothers played on the corner, their cries of excitement always seemed to get louder. When her brothers came home after a night of gambling, Jamika asked after this tall, attractive man. Her brother Tony told her that his name was Anthony Mosley, but that he went by Daff. Jamika kept asking around about Daff, and she only heard good things. A friend who had dated him confirmed that he was funny, clean, and decent. So when his 63 Impala convertible pulled up behind Jamika on her way home from school, and the hydraulics dipped the lowrider right onto the asphalt, as Jamika put it, I almost lost my mind. I was done. We'll tell the story of Jamika and Daff's romance and how their love made them both rich right after this. Now, back to the story. When 15-year-old Jamika Thompson returned to Los Angeles in the summer of 1977 for her sophomore year of high school, she found herself drawn to a charismatic gambler on the block named Daff. Everyone in the neighborhood knew and loved him. But for Jamika, there was one thing that set him above the rest, his money. Daff took Jamika to Marie Callender's on their first date. Before this outing, the nicest restaurant Jamika had ever been inside of was McDonald's. She couldn't believe that she got to hold the menu at the table rather than ordering off the wall. An old couple at the table next to theirs didn't have enough money to cover their bill. Daff slipped the waiter a 50 and wouldn't allow the couple to make a big show of gratitude. He was happy to help. Jamika was taken with the money Daff flashed around and even more taken with how he spent it. Even though he made a lot of money, he never allowed it to make him arrogant or rude. And where did all this money come from? Selling marijuana. Before long, Daff was Jamika's boyfriend. When Jamika started her sophomore year of high school in the fall of 1977, she brought Daff's weed business to school. According to Jamika, she was bringing in thousands of dollars within a couple of months. She had it all. Popularity, a boyfriend, and most of all, money. For Jamika, money changed everything. Money made her feel in control of her life. She felt protected and powerful in a way she never had before. Suddenly, the people around her respected her. Jamika's addiction to wealth and power had begun. As the money flowed in, Jamika became intoxicated with it. And that intoxication soon clouded her judgment. Jamika really liked Daff, but she was always on the lookout for other opportunities. She always wanted more. Her desire led her to pursue another man on the block named Lonzo. Jamika described him as short and stocky, with a nasty streak. He was the exact opposite of Daff. One evening, Jamika saw Lonzo on a balcony a few apartments down. He grinned at her. Then, in a flash, Lonzo leaped off the balcony onto the street. He was in pursuit of another neighbor who owed him money. He caught the debtor and tore the back pocket off his pants to get at his cash. Jamika's first reaction was, no way Daff would do that. She recognized something in Lonzo that she felt in herself. 
a killer instinct, and Jamika was drawn to it. Before she knew it, Jamika was balancing two men, Daff up front and Lonzo on the down low. Jamika reveled in the attention, but the cheating only made Jamika more possessive of Daff. She loved the superiority of knowing she was the only one getting to double dip. Jamika wouldn't allow other women near her man. Jamika even fought one of her classmates in a Burger King parking lot after she heard the girl merely mention Daff's name. With two men and complete control, Jamika felt on top of the world. But as she would soon learn, she couldn't stay on top forever. After a few months of juggling her drug dealing, school, and two separate men, Jamika's world shook when she discovered she was pregnant at the age of 16. The baby did not belong to Daff. Jamika had been withholding sex from her main man in order to retain his interest and respect. Yet while she kept her distance from Daff, she had jumped right into bed with Lonzo, an incredibly sexy man she never planned to have a future with. Jamika approached Lonzo about the situation. Without ceremony or emotion, he suggested she get an abortion. Jamika was crushed. Lonzo never felt anything for her. After talking with her mother, Lonnie, Jamika went forward with the abortion. Jamika wrote, Having that abortion hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever been through. But worst of all, it brought a horrible emptiness I'd never felt before. But there was a silver lining to Jamika's struggle. When Daff finally learned the truth about Jamika's cheating and abortion, he stuck by her. While Jamika was physically and emotionally recovering from the abortion, Daff visited with food, presence, and humor. In a time of absolute desolation, Daff was the only bright spot. When Lonnie gave Daff an earful over the abortion, Jamika tensed up. She hadn't told her mother about the relationship with Lonzo and just let her assume Daff was the father. But Daff protected Jamika and kept up the lie. Jamika didn't know what she had done to deserve such a loyal man. But one thing was for sure, Daff was a keeper. In the spring of 1979, Jamika's mother was called up by the Air Force Reserves and stationed in Japan. She left Jamika in charge of caring for her baby brother Cliff, who was only a year old. But Jamika was only 17 years old and still a junior in high school. Daff proved himself to be upstanding yet again. He moved in with them and cared for Cliff while Jamika kept up in school. As Jamika watched Daff take responsibility around the house, she fell even more completely in love with him. As Daff and Jamika started thinking about a real future together after Jamika graduated from high school, Jamika found herself preoccupied with the same desire that recurred in her life again and again. Control. While Daff and Jamika lived together at her mother's house, Daff began conducting his business there. When Jamika witnessed Daff's deals firsthand, she was dismayed to find that Daff's tender heart had made its way into his game. When a customer couldn't pay, Daff would offer them weed on credit. He was known to give loans 
or front others gambling money. But Jamika didn't like seeing anyone get a handout of what she was starting to think of as her money. One night, Lonzo came to the house. The man had no shame. Not only did Lonzo continue buying weed from Daff after getting Jamika pregnant, but he had the audacity to show up without money to pay. Jamika was hot and ready to go off. But Daff told Jamika not to worry. A little free weed didn't bother him. Lonzo was old news, but Jamika couldn't abide. She followed Lonzo outside. Jamika grabbed the marijuana right out of Lonzo's hands and put her face close to his. She wanted it to be crystal clear how it was going to be moving forward. No money, no weed. Lonzo got off that porch as fast as he could, empty-handed. Word got around fast. Daff was still a nice guy, but now Jamika was the backstop. Jamika wrote in her memoir, Playing that role came naturally. From then on, I checked everybody. Daff and Jamika were becoming a real team, and Jamika was the muscle. After she graduated from high school in the spring of 1980, Jamika had more time to build what she was now calling her business. Her mother Lonnie had returned from Japan, and she insisted that Jamika live with her until Jamika turned 18 in a few months. So Jamika moved with her mother and little brother Cliff to a new apartment near Venice Boulevard in Los Angeles. Right away, Jamika noticed that another kid in the building, Ricardo, was selling weed. Jamika didn't like competition, but she had confidence in the quality of her product. Instead of seeing a threat, she saw an opportunity. She sent a complimentary sample of her product to Ricardo, casually letting him know that she'd be happy to go into business together. According to Jamika's memoir, once I slid him a sample, it was a done deal. From there, things took off. Jamika sold weed out of the apartment whenever her mother wasn't around, but that model wasn't sustainable with her growing business. Her weed was so good, too many people were coming to the door. So she moved sales to the curb. Jamika's business expanded rapidly in the new market. She was selling more in hours, sometimes even minutes, than she used to sell in a week in high school. She was cocky, quoted as saying, where there had been nothing a month ago. Now there was a full-on weed spot with customers round the clock. Every night I stood on that corner like I owned it. When Jamika was working, she always wore a sharp outfit, matching her shoes to her athletic wear. She enjoyed the independence dealing gave her, and she took pride in her work. By selling on the corner, Jamika certainly wasn't keeping her operation low-key. But the only time she saw the police was when they visited the donut spot down the road. By the time Jamika turned 18 in September of 1980 and moved in with Daff, she had turned her upstairs neighbor Ricardo into a loyal dealer. He kept up sales in Lonnie's apartment complex while Jamika dealt with exclusive, high-rolling clients at her new place with Daff. By this point, Daff and Jamika were selling marijuana by the pound. 
Jamika remembers receiving an entire U-Haul stuffed with bricks of weed. Photographs from this time show Jamika neatly piling stacks of bills on her bed and posing with the cash for the camera. For Christmas 1980, Jamika got Daff a rainbow selection of sweatsuits and Jordache jeans. Daff got Jamika a Louis Vuitton bag. Inside was the key to a Mercedes convertible. Jamika and Daff were enjoying their first taste of the good life. But for Jamika, a single taste of something good always made her hungry for more. Late in 1980, Jamika picked up the phone. It was Daff. He'd been arrested and he needed her to post his bail. So she did what we all do when we need help. She called her mother. Lonnie gave Jamika the number for a bail bondsman she knew named Willie. At Willie's instruction, Jamika arrived at the Venice police station with $10,000 cash for Daff's bail. A Rolls-Royce the color of money rolled smoothly into the lot. The man who emerged wore a suit and matching crocodile leather boots and a belt. He owned a house in Baldwin Hills with a view of downtown Los Angeles. That day, Daff got out of jail and Jamika met a man who was as rich as she wanted to be. She was convinced that there was more than bail money behind Willie's wealth. It took several weeks, but after many phone calls and meals together, Jamika won Willie's trust. She finally got the call she'd been waiting for. Willie was ready to work with her. We'll learn what surprises Willie had in store for Jamika after this. And now, back to the story. By late 1980, Jamika Thompson was 18 years old, and she had just met a bail bondsman named Willie who had helped get her boyfriend Daff out of jail. Yet Willie was extravagantly wealthy. Jamika was convinced he was doing some illicit business on the side, and she wanted in. After weeks of convincing, Jamika had finally arranged a business meeting. When Jamika arrived at the address Willie gave her, it was a motel. Jamika's guard was up. She and Willie had met at restaurants or at his house in the past. She wasn't sure what to expect, but the money was calling, so she got out of the car. Willie welcomed her in. The room was uninhabited except for a Gucci duffel bag. Jamika remained standing while Willie gave her a long speech about how the work he was entrusting her with required patience, organization, loyalty. Jamika wished he would just get to the point. Eventually, Willie opened the duffel bag. Inside was a triple beam scale. Willie started to instruct Jamika on how to use it. But this time, she cut him off. She knew what to do with a scale. So Willie finally cut to the chase. The next thing he pulled out of the bag was a plastic sandwich bag stuffed with a fine white powder, cocaine. It was the first time Jamika laid eyes on the drug that would define her life. Willie showed Jamika how to measure the cocaine and what to charge. $100 for a gram, 50 for half and 25 for a quarter. When Jamika asked how much Willie wanted for the drugs and scale, he told her the first batch was complimentary. 
and then he showed her a roll of colored condoms. Pick a flavor. Willie had treated Jamika like a professional so far, and she found this proposal demeaning and foul. But that cocaine could bring Jamika and Daff the lifestyle she'd always dreamed of. She picked Cherry. That day, Jamika learned an important lesson about how to build trust in her business relationships. In the future, Jamika would make sure she was the one offering the condoms. She would be in control. Jamika and Daff's cocaine business took off fast. Soon, Willie was delivering their cocaine a kilo at a time, and then it was two kilos, and then it was four. As Daff often said, they were winning. But just as Jamika and Daff were getting established as cocaine dealers, the game changed again. A new form of cocaine was being born right there in Los Angeles, crack. Powdered cocaine could be cooked with a little baking soda and water to form smokable rocks. This treatment exponentially magnified the euphoric effects of cocaine because smoking the drug made it hit the system faster. As soon as the high wore off, users immediately wanted more. It was incredibly addictive and cheaper than powdered cocaine. In 1980, the Los Angeles Police Department was overwhelmed. According to Jackie Hickey, a former gang task force officer for the LAPD, it felt like crack was being sold on every corner. Hickey even recalled a Christmas tree lot that accepted crack as payment. Cars parked on the street would have their antennas ripped off so they could be used as makeshift crack pipes. Jamika learned about crack when her customers started asking for it. Soon, her and Daff's entire business was transformed. They had four to five crack houses running at a time, cooking and selling the drug. But a larger business meant more risks. Some of Daff and Jamika's workers were robbed and even murdered. After graduating from high school, Jamika carried a gun in her designer handbags and had no qualms about pulling the trigger. But she and Daff used another motivator even more powerful than fear to hold their business together. Generosity. Daff and Jamika rolled up all the singles that came through their doors into $50 bundles. These were given to children, the homeless, and families in need around their neighborhood. Daff and Jamika also hosted barbecues for their entire neighborhood and all their employees every weekend in the local park. Daff hired a different DJ every week to keep the tunes flowing. The power couple would often make an entrance, emerging from one of their luxury vehicles in matching outfits. They enjoyed rewarding the people who worked for them, and they knew it paid dividends. Their workers' loyalty was essential to giving Jamika and Daff the security they needed to build a family. In November 1981, Less than a year after they began selling cocaine, Jamika realized she was pregnant. This time, the pregnancy was a joyous one. Jamika hoped the baby would be a boy so it would look like her Daff. Daff was hoping for just the opposite. Daff immediately placed Jamika on maternity leave. He wouldn't allow her to touch the drugs, but she did still count the money and deposit it in the bank. In July 1982, 
when Jamika was 20 years old, after nearly 24 hours of labor, Anthony Jr. was born. His birth inspired such joy in his parents that a few months later, they drove to Las Vegas and got married. When they got back to LA, they moved into their first house. They were still winning. But all winning streaks must come to an end. In early 1983, Daph and Jamika were having breakfast at the M&M, a local cafe where many of their friends congregated. Jamika had been out of touch with the day-to-day -day of the game for over a year, but she was about to be tagged back into play. One of their dealers brought over a fat man in flashy jewelry and shoes to meet Daph. His name was Judah. It was a simple introduction and handshake, but Jamika was immediately skeptical. After Judah left, Jamika handed Daph a wet nap. She didn't want him contaminated by someone she didn't trust. Jamika's distrust only increased after she and Daph socialized with Judah. They went out on two different occasions. Judah brought two different women and introduced each one of them as his wife. Jamika definitely didn't want Daph associating with someone who disrespected women that way. But despite her reservations, Judah and Daph went into business together. Before long, Daph was staying out all night. He always claimed he'd been out with Judah, but Jamika's gut told her something more was going on. She started snooping in Daph's drawers and cars until she found proof of her suspicions a pile of unpaid parking tickets issued at a location she wasn't familiar with. That was all she needed to conclude her husband was cheating on her. Jamika brewed herself a cup of tea and sat at her kitchen table to wait. For hours, her imagination ran wild and her rage ballooned. Jamika's possessiveness over Daph had only grown since the beating she'd given her friend in the Burger King parking lot in high school. Daph should have known he was playing with fire. When he finally came home around three in the morning, Jamika didn't ask questions. She just started firing her gun. Somehow, Daph dodged all the bullets and left in a hurry to sleep at his mother's house. But Jamika wasn't finished with him. She used Find It 411 to locate the cross streets for the address where Daph had been issued the tickets. She took a sleeping Anthony out of bed and dropped him off at Lonnie's house. Then she drove to the address on the tickets. The address led her to an apartment building, and parked in the alleyway behind it was Daph's truck. Jamika wasted no time. She picked up an empty bottle in the alley and swung it into the windshield. The truck's alarm immediately went off. Seconds later, a woman came running out of the building. The woman cut off the alarm, which meant she had Daph's keys. Jamika smiled. Here was the woman who had ruined Jamika's marriage. Jamika leaped at the woman, grabbed her hair to hold her head still, and punched her over and over. As soon as Jamika heard gunshots, she knew it was time to retreat. As she fled, she saw Daph behind her, shirtless and pointing a huge gun at her. The honeymoon was finally over. For the next couple of weeks, Daph called and paged Amika nonstop. Sometimes she talked to him, 
but mostly she'd let the calls go unanswered. Death had betrayed her, and she didn't think there was anything he could do to regain her trust. After Jamika and Daff had been separated for a while, Jamika's father took her and Anthony for a drive. Jamika's father worked in construction, and he said he wanted to show them a fabulous mansion he'd been working on in Encino, a suburb of Los Angeles. The neighborhood was packed with million-dollar mansions. Jamika's father kept naming off the celebrities that lived there, like Marlon Jackson, Michael Jackson's brother. Then her father flipped down his visor and pushed the button on a remote hidden inside. The heavy metal gate to the property in front of them swung open, and suddenly they were headed up the long driveway toward the opulent house. But Chimika could tell this property wasn't under construction. It looked finished. It looked perfect. Chimika's father invited them inside to look around. The interior of the house was just as gorgeous as the exterior. There were marble floors and a crystal chandelier in the entry. The master suite featured an oversized whirlpool tub and heated floors. The backyard was just as breathtaking, outfitted with a pool and hot tub. The entire property was monitored by security cameras. It was a dream. When Jamika asked her father who was moving in, he just smiled and offered to show her the garage. The garage door slid up to reveal, Daff waiting inside. Anthony ran to him excitedly, and Daff swept him into a tight hug. Then Daff handed Jamika two sets of keys, one to the house, and one to a new BMW already parked in the garage. Jamika took back her husband, and together they moved into the mansion in Encino. Jamika and Daff were back together and closer than ever. For Daff's birthday that year, Jamika threw him a surprise party at a club on Sunset called the Candy Store. Everything, the decorations, the catering, the entertainment, the cake, was first class. But Jamika really outdid herself with the gift, a custom-painted Clinet Roadster, which she unveiled in front of the party guests. Today, a 1980s Clinet sells for about $45,000. But even though things between Daff and Jamika were on the mend, the game was becoming more violent and dangerous than ever. Although they were physically removed from the brutality that plagued South Central Los Angeles, their mansion wasn't a fortress. In late 1984, Jamika suggested to Daff for the first time that they leave Los Angeles. She had a friend raising her family in Texas, and it sounded like a good place for them to start over with a legitimate business. They could take their money and get out of the game. Daff was willing to consider it, but the game had other plans. The very next day, November 23, 1984, 22-year-old Jamika prepared breakfast in bed for Daff. She wanted to make sure their conversation about the move to Texas started off on the right foot. But when she brought the food upstairs, Daff was getting ready to leave. Jamika protested that she wanted to discuss their plans. Daff smiled and told her they'd do whatever she wanted. Jamika was delighted and kissed her husband goodbye. Then she called her friend in Texas, and they spent hours planning the move. 
Then Daff called. He sounded pleased. He told Jamaica he was winning and he would be home soon. He and Jamaica exchanged I love yous and hung up. A few hours later, another friend of Jamaica's called. She asked if Daff was okay. She'd just heard he'd been shot at a car wash where he liked to play craps. Jamika assured her friend that Daff was fine. She'd just spoken with him. Then, Jamika's pager went off. She returned the call. It was another friend reporting the same news. Jamika's stomach dropped. The house phone rang again. This time, it was Daff's mother. She asked Jamika to come to the house. Daff had been shot, and she wanted Jamika to come with her to the hospital. Jamika's worst fears were coming true. Jamika put Anthony in the car and sped over to Daff's mother's house. By the time she reached it, the entire block was jammed with cars. She pulled over and walked through the crowd. She saw an unwelcome face approaching, Judah. Judah spoke in a monotone that conveyed finality, but not one bit of remorse. Daff was dead. Jamika was stunned. Suddenly, her perfect life was shattered. She was a widow, and her son Anthony no longer had a father. Jamika never met Daff's mother at the hospital. She went straight to the city morgue. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Jamika expands her Los Angeles cocaine empire nationwide and how her love for her son made it all come crashing down. For more information on Jamika Thompson Hairston, amongst the many sources we used, we found her memoir, Queen Pin, written by Jamika Thompson Hairston and David Ritz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>